Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good evening. Um, I'm Anna Wilson-Fletcher, I'm the Publicity Manager for Waterstones, um, here to introduce us as sponsors. Um, Waterstones branches have been running events with authors very successfully for years, and our customers love them and so do the staff. Given our passion for bringing together um, writers and readers, it seems entirely natural that Waterstones should wish to sponsor an event at uh, Hare. Um, it's a source of considerable pride and pleasure to be associated with an author of Margaret Atwood's stature, so without further ado, Margaret Atwood. between life and poetry, or at least between my life and my poetry. This is difficult. I have recently read an account of a study which intends to show how writers of a certain age, my age roughly, um, attempt to seize control of the stories of their own lives by deviously concocting their own biographies. It's a feature of our age that if you write a fiction, everyone assumes that the people and events in it are disguised reality, but if you write your autobiography, it is equally assumed you're lying your head off. (laughs) This uh, may be especially true of poets. I know of one poet who has floated at least five versions of his autobiography, uh, none of them true. I, of course, am also a novelist, and therefore I am much more truthful than that. But since I am also a poet, and poets lie, as Plato told us, how can you believe me? Here, then, is the official authorized version of my life. I was once a snub-nosed blonde. My name was Betty. I had a perky personality and was a cheerleader for the college football team. My favorite color was pink. Then I became a poet. My hair darkened overnight. My nose lengthened. I gave up football for the cello. My real name disappeared and was replaced by one that had a chance of being taken seriously by the literati, who ever heard of a poet called Betty. (laughs) And my clothes changed color in the closet, all by themselves, from pink to black. I stopped humming the songs from Oklahoma and began quoting Kierkegaard. (laughs) And not only that, All of my high-heeled shoes lost their heels 
and were magically transformed into sandals. Needless to say, my many boyfriends took one look at this and ran screaming from the scene as if their toenails were on fire. New boyfriends replaced them. They all had beards. Believe it or not, there is an element of truth in this story. It's the bit about the name, which was not Betty, but something equally non-poetic and with the same number of letters. It's also the bit about the boyfriends. But meanwhile, here is the real truth. I became a poet at the age of 16. I did not intend to do it. It was not my fault. Allow me to set the scene for you. The year was 1956. Elvis Presley had just appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show from the waist up. (laughs) At school dances, which were held in the gymnasium and smelled like armpits, the dance with the most charisma was rock and roll. The evening gowns were strapless, if you could manage it. They had crinoline skirts that made you look like half a cabbage with a little radish head. (laughs) Girls were forbidden to wear jeans to school except on football days when they sat on the hill to watch and it was feared that the boys would be able to see up their dresses unless they wore pants. TV dinners had just been invented. None of this, you might think, and rightly, was conducive to the production of poetry. If someone had told me a year previously that I would suddenly turn into a poet, I would have giggled nervously. Yet, this is what did happen. I was in my fourth year of high school. The high school was in Toronto, which in the year 1956 was still known as Toronto the Good because of its puritanical liquor laws. It had a population of 650,509 people at the time and was a synonym for bland propriety. The high school I attended was also a synonym for bland propriety, and although it has produced a steady stream of chartered accountants and one cabinet minister, no other poets have ever emerged from it before or since. The day I became a poet was a sunny day of no particular ominousness. I was walking across the football field, not because I was sports-minded or had plans to smoke a cigarette behind the field house, the only other reason for going there, but because this was my normal way home from school. I was scuttling along in my usual furtive way, suspecting no ill, when a large invisible thumb descended from the sky and pressed down on the top of my head. A poem formed. (laughs) It was quite a gloomy poem, as the poems of the young usually are. It was a gift, this poem, a gift from an anonymous donor, and as such, both exciting and sinister at the same time. I suspect this is the way all poets begin writing poetry, 
only they don't want to admit it. So they make up more rational explanations. But this is the true explanation, and I defy anyone to disprove it. The poem that I composed on that eventful day, although entirely without merit or even promise, did have some features. It rhymed and scanned because we had been taught rhyming and scansion at school. It resembled the poetry of Lord Byron and Edgar Allan Poe with a little Shelley and Keats thrown in. The fact is that at the time I became a poet, I had read very few poems written after the year 1900. I knew nothing of modernism or free verse. These were not the only things I knew nothing of. I had no idea, for instance, that I was about to step into a whole set of preconceptions uh, about the social roles which had to do with what poets were like, how they should behave, and what they ought to wear. Moreover, I did not know that the rules about these things were different if you were female. I did not know that poetess was an insult and that I myself would someday be called one. I did not know that to be told I had transcended my gender would be considered a compliment. <laughs> I didn't know yet that black clothing was compulsory. All of that was in the future. When I was 16, it was simple. Poetry existed, therefore it could be written, and nobody had told me yet the many, many reasons why it could not be written by me. At first glance, there was little in my background to account for the descent of the large thumb of poetry onto the top of my head. But let me try to account for my own poetic genesis. I was born on November the 18th, 1939, in the Ottawa General Hospital, an hour after the end of the Grey Cup football game, and two and a half months after the beginning of the Second World War. Being born at the beginning of the war gave me a substratum of anxiety and dread to draw on, which is very useful to a poet. It also meant that I was malnourished. This is why I am short. <laughs> if it hadn't been for food rationing, I would have been six feet tall. I saw my first balloon in 1946, one that had been saved from before the war. It was inflated for me as a treat when I had the mumps on my sixth birthday, and it broke immediately. This was a major influence on my later work. <laughs> as for my birth month, a detail of much interest to poets, obsessed as they are with symbolic systems of all kinds, I was not pleased during my childhood to have been born in November, as there wasn't much inspiration for birthday party motifs. February children got hearts, May ones flowers, but what was there for me? A cake surrounded by withered leaves. November was a drab, dark, and wet month, lacking even snow. Its only noteworthy festival was Remembrance Day. 
But in adult life, I discovered that November was, astrologically speaking, the month of sex, death, and regeneration, and that November 1st was the Day of the Dead. It still wouldn't have been much good for birthday parties, (laughs) but it was just fine for poetry, which tends to revolve a good deal around sex and death, with regeneration optional. Six months after I was born, I was taken by Paxac to a remote cabin in northwestern Quebec where my father was doing research as a forest entomologist. I should add here that my parents were unusual for their time. Both of them liked being as far away from civilization as possible, my mother because she hated housework, my father because he liked chopping wood. They also weren't much interested in what the sociologists would call rigid sex role stereotyping. This was a help to me in later life and enabled me to get a job at summer camp teaching small boys to start fires. It's true, it's true. (laughs) My childhood was divided between the forest and the warmer parts of the year and various cities in the colder parts. I was thus able to develop the rudiments of the double personality so necessary for a poet. I also had lots of time for meditation. In the bush, there were no theaters, movies, parades, or very functional radios. There were also not many other people. The result was that I learned to read early, I was lucky enough to have a mother who read out loud, but she couldn't be doing it all the time, and you had to amuse yourself with something or other when it rained. I became a reading addict and have remained so ever since. You'll ruin your eyes, I was told, when caught at my secret vice under the covers with a flashlight. I did so and would do it again. Like cigarette addicts who will smoke mattress stuffing if all else fails, I will read anything. As a child, I read a good many things I shouldn't have, but this also is useful for poetry. As the critic Northrop Fry has said, we learn poetry through the seat of our pants by being bounced up and down to nursery rhymes as children. Poetry is essentially oral and is close to song. Rhythm precedes meaning. My first experiences with poetry were Mother Goose, which contains some of the most surrealistic poems in the English language, and whatever singing commercials could be picked up on the radio, such as, You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. It's poetry too, rhymes. I created my first book of poetry at the age of five. To begin with, I made the book itself, cutting the pages out of scribbler paper and sewing them together in what I did not know was the traditional signature fashion. Then I copied into the book all the poems I could remember, and when there were some blank pages left at the end, I added a few of my own to complete it. This book was an entirely satisfying art object for me, so satisfying that I felt I had nothing more to say in that direction and gave up writing poetry altogether for another 11 years. My English teacher from 1955, 
run to ground later by some documentary crew trying to explain my life, said that in her class I had showed no particular promise. This was true. Until the descent of the giant thumb, I showed no particular promise. I also showed no particular promise for some time afterwards, but I did not know this. A lot of being a poet consists of willed ignorance. If you woke up from your trance and realized the nature of the life-threatening and dignity-destroying precipice you were walking along, you would switch into actuarial sciences immediately. If I had not been ignorant in this particular way, I would not have announced to an assortment of my high school female friends in the cafeteria one brown bag lunchtime that I was going to be a writer. I said writer, not poet. I did have some common sense. But my announcement was certainly a conversation stopper. Sticks of celery were suspended in mid-crunch, Peanut butter sandwiches paused halfway between table and mouth. Nobody said a word. One of those presents reminded me of this incident recently. I had repressed it and said she had been simply astounded. Why, I said, because I wanted to be a writer? No, she said, because you had the guts to say it out loud. But I was not conscious of having guts or even of needing them. We obsessed folks in our youth are oblivious to the effects of our our obsessions may have on others. Only later do we develop enough cunning to conceal them, or at least to avoid mentioning them at cocktail parties. The one good thing to be said about announcing yourself as a writer in the colonial Canadian 50s is that nobody told me I couldn't do it because I was a girl. They simply found the entire proposition ridiculous. Writers were dead in English, or else extremely elderly and American. They were not 16 and Canadian. It would have been worse if I'd been a boy. Never mind the fact that all the really stirring poems I'd read had been about slaughter, mayhem, war, sex, and death. Poetry was thought of as existing in the pastel female realm, along with embroidery and flower arranging. If I'd been male, I would probably have had to roll around in the mud in some boring skirmish over whether or not I was a sissy. I'll skip over the embarrassingly bad poems I published in the high school yearbook. Had I no shame? Well, actually, no. Mentioning only briefly the word of encouragement I received from my wonderful English teacher, Miss Bessie Billings. I can't understand a word of this, dear, so it must be good. (laughs) I will not go into the dismay of my parents who worried, with good reason, over how I would support myself. I will pass over my flirtation with journalism as a way of making a living, an idea I dropped when I discovered that in the 50s, unlike now, female journalists always ended up writing the obituaries and the ladies' page. But how was I to make a living? There was not a roaring market in poetry. 
there then. I thought of running away and being a waitress, which I later tried, but got very tired and thin. There's nothing like clearing away other people's mushed up dinners to make you lose your appetite. Finally, I went into English literature at university, having decided in a cynical manner that I could always teach to support my writing habit. Once I got past the Anglo-Saxon, it was fun, although I did suffer a simulated cardiac arrest the first time I encountered T.S. Eliot and realized that not all poems rhymed anymore. I don't understand a word of this, I thought, so it must be good. (laughs) After a year or two of keeping my head down and trying to pass myself off as a normal person, I made contact with the five other people at my university who were interested in writing. And through them and some of my teachers, I discovered that there was a whole subterranean wonderland of Canadian writing that was going on just out of general earshot and sight. It was not large. In 1960, you were doing well to sell 200 copies of of a book of poems by a Canadian, and a thousand novels was a bestseller. There were only five literary magazines, which ran on the lifeblood of their editors. But this world was very integrated. Once in, that is, once published in a magazine, it was as if you'd been given a Masonic handshake or a key to the Underground Railroad. All of a sudden, you were part of a conspiracy. People sometimes ask me about my influences. These were, by and large, the Canadian poets of my own generation and just before mine. P.K. Page, Margaret Avison, J. McPherson, James Rainey, Irving Layton, Leonard Cohen, Al Purdy, D.G. Jones, Eli Mandel, John Newlove, Gwendolyn McEwen, Michael Andachi, Pat Lane, George Bowering, A.M. Klein, Alden Nowlin, Ann Wilkinson, These are some of the poets who are writing and publishing then, whom I knew and whose poetry I read. People writing about Canadian poetry at that time spoke a lot about the necessity of creating a Canadian literature. There was a good deal of excitement and the feeling that you were in on the ground floor, so to speak. Poetry was a vital form in the early 60s, and it quickly acquired a public dimension. Above ground, the bourgeoisie reigned supreme in their two-piece suits and ties and camel hair coats and pearl earrings, not all of this worn by the same sex. But at night, the bohemian world came alive in various nooks and crannies of Toronto, sporting black turtlenecks, drinking coffee at little tables with red-checked tablecloths and candles stuck in candy bottles in coffee houses, well, in the one coffee house in town, listening to jazz and folk singing, reading their poems out loud as if they'd never heard it was stupid, (laughs) and putting swear words into them. For a 20-year-old, this was intoxicating stuff. By this time, I had my black wardrobe more or less together, 
and had learned not to say, well, hi there, in sprightly tones. I was publishing in little magazines, and shortly thereafter I started to write reviews for them too. I didn't know what I was talking about, but I soon began to find out. Every year for four years, I put together a collection of my poems and submitted it to a publishing house. Every year it was, to my dismay then, to my relief now, rejected. Why was I so eager to be published right away? Like all other 21-year-old poets, I thought I would be dead by 30. And Sylvia Plath had not set a helpful example. (laughs) For a while there, you were made to feel that if a poet and female, you could not really be serious about it unless you'd made at least one suicide attempt. So I felt I was running out of time. My poems were still not very good, but by now they showed, how shall I put it, a sort of twisted and febrile glimmer. In my graduating year, a group of them won the main poetry prize at the university. Madness took hold of me, and with the aid of a friend and another friend's flatbed press, we printed them. A lot of poets published their own work then. Unlike novels, poetry was short and therefore cheap to do. We had to print each poem separately and then disassemble it as there were not enough A's for the whole book. The cover was done with a lino block. We printed 250 copies and sold them through bookstores for 50 cents each. They now go in the rare book trade for $1,800 a pop. Wish I'd kept some. (laughs) Three years or so later, after two years at graduate school at the dreaded Harvard University, two broken engagements, a year of living in a tiny rooming house room and working at a market research company, which was more fun than a barrel of drugged monkeys and a tin of orange-flavored rice pudding. And after the massive rejection of my first novel and of several other poetry collections as well, and not to mention my first confusing trip to Europe, I ended up in British Columbia teaching grammar to engineering students at 8.30 in the morning in a Quonset hut. It was all right, as none of us were awake. (laughs) I made them write imitations of Kafka, which I thought might help them in their chosen profession. (laughs) True, 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 that's true. In comparison with the few years I had just gone through, this was sort of like going to heaven. I lived in an apartment built on top of somebody's house and had no furniture. But not only did I have a 180-degree view of Vancouver Harbor, I also had all night to write in. I taught in the daytime, ate canned food, did not wash my dishes until all of them were dirty, The biologist in me became very interested in the different varieties of molds that could be grown on leftover craft dinner, 
and stayed up until four in the morning. I completed in that one year my first officially published book of poems and my first published novel, which I wrote on blank UBC exam booklets, as well as a number of short stories and the beginnings of two other novels later completed. It was an astonishingly productive year. I looked like the Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) Art has its price. This first book of poems was called The Circle Game. I designed the cover myself using stick-on dots. We were very cost-effective in those days. And to everyone's surprise, especially mine, it won a prize called the Governor General's Award, which in Canada was the big one to win. Literary prizes are a crapshoot, and I was lucky that year. I was back at Harvard by then, mopping up the uncompleted work for my doctorate. I never did finish it. And living with three roommates whose names were Judy and Sue and Karen. To collect the prize, I had to attend a ceremony in Ottawa at Government House, which meant dress-ups. And it was obvious to all of us as we went through the two items in my wardrobe that I had nothing to wear. Sue lent me the dress and earrings, Judy the shoes, and while I was away, they incinerated my clunky rubber-soled hush puppy shoes having decided that these did not go with my new poetic image. This was an act of treachery, but they were right. I was now a recognized poet and had a thing or two to live up to. It took me a while to get the hair right, but I finally settled down with a sort of modified Celtic look, which is about the only thing available to me short of baldness. I no longer feel I'll be dead by 30. (laughs) Now it's 60. I suppose these deadlines we set for ourselves are really a way of saying we appreciate time and want to use all of it. I'm still writing, I'm still writing poetry, I still can't explain why, and I'm still running out of time. Wordsworth was sort of right when he said, Poets in their youth begin in gladness, but thereof comes in the end despondency and madness. Except that sometimes poets skip the gladness and go straight to the despondency. Why is that? Part of it is the condition under which poets work, giving all, receiving little in return from an age that by and large ignores them, and part of it is cultural expectation the lunatic, the lover, and the poet, says Shakespeare, and notice which comes first. My own theory is that poetry is composed with the melancholy side of the brain, and that if you do nothing but, you may find yourself going slowly down a long, dark tunnel with no exit. I have avoided this by being ambidextrous. I write novels, too. But when I find myself writing poetry again, It always has the surprise of that first unexpected and anonymous gift. I'd like to conclude by reading you two poems. 
They're from my most recent book of poems, Morning in the Burned House, much of which was written in hotel rooms when I was on a 67-city book tour. This is true. There's nothing else to do if you don't like television and you've already read the Bible. (laughs) The first poem I'll read is like this talk, vaguely autobiographical. In the Secular Night In the secular night, you wander around alone in your house. It's 2.30. Everyone has deserted you, or this is your story. You remember it from being 16, when the others were out somewhere having a good time, or so you suspected, and you had to babysit. You took a large scoop of vanilla ice cream and filled up the glass with grape juice and ginger ale, and put on Glenn Miller with his big band sound and lit a cigarette and blew the smoke up the chimney and cried for a while because you were not dancing and then danced by yourself, your mouth circled with purple. Now, 40 years later, things have changed and it's baby lima beans. It's necessary to reserve a secret vice. This is what comes from forgetting to eat at the stated meal times. You simmer them carefully, drain, add cream and pepper, and amble up and down the stairs, scooping them up with your fingers right out of the bowl, talking to yourself out loud. You'd be surprised if you got an answer, but that part will come later. There is so much silence between the words you say. You say, the sensed absence of God and the sensed presence amount to much the same thing, only in reverse. You say, I have too much white clothing. You start to hum. Several hundred years ago, this could have been mysticism or heresy. It isn't now. Outside, there are sirens. Someone's been run over. The century grinds on. The second poem is called King Lear in Respite Care. don't know whether you have respite care here, whether you have that term. It's, um, you can put people who are being cared for at home into respite care for a few days while Oh, the people are doing the care, who are doing the caring for at home um, have a break. The daughters have their parties. Who can cope? He's left here in a chair he can't get out of in all this snow or possibly wallpaper, wheeled somewhere. He will have to be sly and stubborn and not let on. Another man's hand coming out of a tweed sleeve that isn't his curls on his knee. He can move it with the other hand. Howling would be uncalled for. Who knows what he knows? 
Many things, but where he is isn't among them. How did it happen, this cave, this hovel? It may or may not be noon. Time is another element you never think about until it's gone. Things like ceilings or air. Someone comes to brush his hair, wheel him to tea time. Old women gather around in pearls and florals. They want to flirt. An old man is so rare. He's a hero just by being here. They giggle. They disappear behind the hawthorn bushes in bloom or possibly sofas. Now he's been left alone with the television turned on to the weather program, the sound down. The cold blast sweeps across the waste field of the afternoon. Rage occurs, followed by supper, something he can't taste, a brownish texture. The sun goes down, the trees bend, they straighten up, they bend. At eight, the youngest daughter comes. She holds his hand. She says, did they feed you? He says, no. He says, get me out of here. He wants so much to say, please, but won't. After a pause, she says, he hears her say, I love you like salt. I'm told that you long to have a question and answer session. If this is so, you will have to ask questions. There are some people with um, microphones, and uh, if there's a problem hearing the questions, I'll repeat them into this microphone so everybody can hear. Okay, the question is, uh, it's frequently been observed uh, that in some of my novels, the relationships between women are seen in very negative terms. Well, first of all, we have to decide whether, um, and is this because of personal experience of mine, we have to decide whether what has frequently been observed is in fact true. Because not all things that are frequently observed are true. <laughs> used to be frequently observed that the... Uh, Sun went around the earth. In some of my novels, there are negative relationships among women, but there are negative relationships among women in real life. And anybody who tells you different is telling a big whopping lie. 
That is not to say that all relationships among women are negative. They are not. And in fact, in The Robber Bride, you have a ratio of three to one. You have three women who have very good relationships, and then you have another woman who has very bad relationships. Uh, So when you write about bad relationships among women, I guess you're, in a way, trying to balance some of the propaganda that went down in the period immediately previous to the time you were writing the book. Uh, I think there was a period when the myth about motherhood got transferred to sisterhood. That is, the myth used to be that everybody, every woman was born a natural mother and it somehow you somehow just kind of sprang into motherhood with no problems. And this got transferred to women's relationships, that women had this kind of natural bond well, I don't think either of them are right. I think you learn these things, and sometimes learning them is a lot of hard work. There's also a big difference between theory and practice, and between what you think ought to be true and what is in fact true, and I think novelists deal more often with what uh, is observed by them than with theory. Am I not right? Yes, of course, of course. Um, of course, some women don't get on. And other women do. Does that is does that is that encouraging? <laughs> I think for a time women thought that they shouldn't dislike other women, and they, then they woke up in the middle of the night realizing that they did dislike some of them and thought they were being very un, un, disloyal, you know, or unnatural. Sorry, I stopped somebody's question. Did, did Orwell did Orwell have an influence on me? You writing The Handmaid's Tale, you bet your bottom dollar he did. I had a traumatic experience with Orwell as a child. I read Animal Farm thinking it was going to be like Peter Rabbit. Cause it, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was horrible. I just was so distressed. Of course, I didn't realize that it was a political allegory at all. I thought it really was about pigs and horses. And I was extremely distressed when the horse died. I was so, I was so upset by that. Uh, and similarly, I read Moby Dick far too early and was very put out by those whales being killed. Um, so, but then I read 1984. It must have been very shortly after it came out. As a teenager, I, I read it, and at the same time, Brave New World. They were in the same kind of period. And, uh, of course, I was deeply impressed with it, and Darkness at Noon came out about the same time. And then I, of course, read a, a number of different utopias going back all the way to Plato's Republic and Book of Revelations, and on up through Swift and and uh, Thomas More and William Morris and so forth. So there's a lot of background there in the form. And the other piece of background is the 17th century Puritans who went to New England and thought they were setting up a, a utopia. They said at that time something that American presidents are still quoting, not realizing what the context was, uh, a city upon a hill, a light to all nations. But as Mr. Hawthorne commented, one of the first things that gets established when you set up your utopia is the prison and the and the scaffold. <laughs> Those are for the people who don't agree with you. <laughs> I wrote a dystopia. That's exactly what I wrote. Oh, that also has a 
the dystopia and the utopia are part of the same tradition. They go together. Yes, it's it's the 19th century was very keen on utopias, and the 20th century has become somewhat disillusioned by that, having seen at least two big experiments that didn't go so well. And uh, the dystopia is a, is a 20th century form. Right. Is Xenia supposed to be pure evil? Is Xenia supposed to be pure evil in The Robber Bride? Or not? Xenia is a trickster figure. What does a trickster figure do in a novel? Or what does a trickster figure do in mythology? Well, the god Mercury is a trickster figure. He, he changes shape, he steals, he's a thief, he lies. Um, but essentially, without figures like this, events do not take place. Trickster figures get the plot moving. They're the people who stoke the fires. <laughs> so, in a way, you know, that's one way of seeing Xenia. Another way of seeing Xenia is that she is the the shadow of the other three characters, uh, because each one of them has a shadow side, and she would not be able to get get through their front door unless she had something to offer them. And what she offers them is a chance to live out a certain fantasy of each one of them. Uh, so, no, I would not say she is pure evil. I'm not. I'm, I don't think that you know human beings are pure evil. Um, she is. She is a bandit. She she lives she lives she colors outside the lines. <laughs> She's an outlaw. It is as we say, the robber bride. What do robbers do? Well they live outside the, the little fences that the rest of us put up and they make raids. They make raids and they steal things. And uh she steals she steals each of their men in turn, but she, she also steals other things, including their illusions about themselves. Uh, and also, you know, the trickster figure, as somebody writing about it, a man called Lewis Hyde has said, the tricks, why is the trickster the messenger of the gods? Because the trickster is the messenger of the gods. On our telephone book in about 1956, used to be the god Mercury, shown with his little hat and telephone wires raved about his private parts. <laughs> But he was, why was Mercury chosen? Because Mercury is the messenger. He's the messenger. So the trickster figure brings a message. What message does she bring to each one of the characters? Well, I leave you to figure that out for yourself. And they're okay. The sorry, the question. Um, she read Cat's Eye first. You read Cat's Eye first, and then you read Surfacing. You found a couple of similarities which confused you. Was it a deliberate revisiting? I think there are a couple of little points in Surfacing that get expanded quite considerably in in Cat's Eye, uh, but the whole book of Surfacing is very different from the the book of Cat's Eye. Uh, for one thing, the location is entirely different and the characters are very different. Um, you're probably thinking of the, uh, you may be thinking possibly of the Sunday school scene. You know, it's about two paragraphs long and surfacing and it's a lot longer than that in Cat's Eye. It's an unused material. 
If you've got some left over, you make it into slip covers. <laughs> got some left over from the curtains. <laughs> what do you... Why, why have you not um, written a book of poetry for ten years? Have you been writing poetry? Okay, why have I not written a book of poetry for ten years? From what I said about the thumb, you will realize that it is completely out of my control. Uh, there is an element of, of will in writing a novel, partly because they're long, but partly because it's a different sort of form. You are telling a story. You have a, you have a structure. You have characters. They move through time. Lyric poetry is quite different, and this is why people find poets so difficult to live with. The novelist gets up, uh, all in his place with the bright, shiny face, and goes to work. And it looks like work, and we know what work is, and we say, oh, he's working, or she, indeed. And we approve of that being a work-oriented society. But what the poet does is look out the window. And other people find this infuriating, because poetry comes when there is a vacant space. And you have to leave that space and be willing to uh, accept that vacancy or that nothingness, um, and then the, the poem may or may not materialize. But it, it, it's, it wasn't up to me to write poetry or not write poetry during that, that ten years. Given that you are ambidextrous and you write prose and poetry, how do the two inform each other? Are you aware of how they do, or are they different experiences while you're doing them? You see what I mean? Okay. The question is one about how do the how does the writing of poetry inform the writing of prose fiction or vice versa? Well, I think I have to go into lying mode at this point. I could make you up a nice lie that would sound good and you you could put it in your term paper. <laughs> I used to think that uh the poetry opened up certain subjects that I would then go on to explore and prose fiction. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that is true. Uh, there may be some elements of, of truth in it. And certainly sometimes one deals with the same complex of images or area, territory in, in poetry and then in prose. Almost never the other way around. Almost never. It's almost always poetry first. But it is not true of every poem, and it's not true of every novel or short story. You can't make a correlation. Money for you. A book of poetry or a book of prose? Well, I'll let you guess. <laughs> I do not sing and play the guitar. So I'm, I'm afraid to say that it is, of course, a book of of prose fiction that makes quotes more money, number one, because it sells more copies, and number two, because the price of the volume is usually higher. And it is simply, it's simply true right now in most Western societies that uh, there are more people who read prose fiction than who read poetry, but you would be surprised at the number of people who write poetry. A huge number of people write poetry. And it may simply be that uh, all of the people who write poetry also buy and read poetry, but they don't all buy and read the same volume of poetry at the same time. So you don't get the best-seller phenomenon. And it's also true that 
bestseller lists do not have a category for poetry which they ought to have, because then things would be somewhat different. And in Canada recently, the Morning in the Burned House made it onto two bestseller lists. They didn't know where to put it. One of them put it on fiction, and the other put it on nonfiction, because <laughs> there was no category for poetry. And there really should be, and I double-dare somebody to, to start a list, and then you would probably say things uh, somewhat differently, but nevertheless, it, it remains true that, that poets uh, are usually poor, unless they sing and play the guitar. They don't make a lot of money from their poetry. They teach at universities, and they do other jobs, like Wallace Stevens. Um, in the 70s, you and, and a handful of other Canadian writers were responsible for um, articulating a Canadian literary identity in the face of um, maybe a sort of American cultural imperialism. Do, do you think that's still necessary 20 years later? Do you think a Canadian literary identity still needs to um, uh, insinuate itself in the same way? Did everybody hear the question? Yes. Um, well, you know, we're in a, at a very problematical period in time. Number one, our government, like how all other governments, is cutting arts funding right and left. Number two, of course, uh, we're at a point in Canada's history where Quebec may suddenly just vanish out of it. And uh, then what will happen to the rest? Well, Alberta will join Texas and uh, <laughs> a few other rearrangements may take place. It is still a situation in which Canadian books by Canadian publishers, or just let's say Canadian books, hold only about 25% of the, of the uh, hardback market, and the percentage of the paperback market is very much lower. We're still subject to huge imports, and you still have to, uh, you still have to go to war every once in a while against various things like infringements of tariff regulations, blah, blah, blah. And it is a constant, it's just a constant, um, it seems to me a constant battle um, under very shifting circumstances. What is different is that when I published the book called Survival in 1972, a number of the reviewers said, why is she writing this this 350-page book about something that doesn't exist? There is no Canadian writing. Let's not fool ourselves, blah, blah, blah. Now that would be impossible. There's enough of it, and enough of it is internationally well enough known that nobody will say that. They may say lots of other things, but not that. And I'm, I'm, I can tell you also that it's very much the same in Quebec amongst Quebec writers. They have the same fight against imports. They have the same struggle to, to maintain their presence in their own province. Um, so it's just a, it's, it's something that happens in small countries that share a language with much larger countries. If we all spoke Inuktitut, there wouldn't be this problem. And in Finland, for instance, there are 80 daily newspapers, and they publish 4,000 books a year, and there are 4 million people in it. Because nobody but the Finns can understand Finnish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Language protection. <laughs> 
a lot of them are translations, but there is a place for writing in Finnish. I'll do uh, one more question, after which I will rush over to the bookstore and I'm glad you mentioned um, the province of Quebec and I just wondered whether the writers in English-speaking Canada and French-speaking Canada have any formal associational relationship. Yes, they do. They, uh, their two writers' associations are, are in cahoots over common causes very frequently and uh, there are also various other kinds of exchange go on. For instance, I just did a, a double interview with a Quebec writer. It was all in Tutu-Francais. Uh, he came to Toronto for four days and interviewed me about my writing, and then I went to the south shore of the St. Lawrence River and interviewed him about his writing for four days. Now, this is hard. I mean, you, you sweat tears of blood, but it is it is really quite necessary, and at the end of that time, we did a, a public thing in, in Rimouski, look it up on the map, uh, which it was concluded that indeed, as writers in their respective cultures, we, we shared a lot of problems. We had a lot of problems in common. And uh, this kind of exchange goes on, not as frequently as it would if more people spoke either A French or B English but it does go on. And that is the last question, and thank you very much.